Let's pray together as we prepare to open the family book. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we are gathered in this building, not by happenstance, but by your providential arrangement. Thank you, Lord, as believing people, we are so thankful that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, you made us alive in Christ by your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for the hunger that you grow and develop in us for yourself and for your word. And as we open your word now, Lord, I pray your blessing, your presence, uh, that the encouragement of your spirit would be real and tangible and that we would leave this place transformed a little more because of you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, in these initial weeks of our sermon series on Colossians, uh, we've journeyed together, I think you might agree, over some very profound and very lofty uh, territory, terrain. We've listened to Paul describe the exalted, majestic, Jesus, we've heard him outline the very purpose of creation uh, and the way in which Christ is preeminent and supreme over not only his creation, but also his church. I think that Jonathan and I would agree that as we've been preaching these very magnificent uh, Colossians texts over the past few Sundays, Really, we felt inadequate to the task. Would you agree, Jonathan? Um, how does a preacher even scratch the surface of the depths that are contained here? And yet, I was very enriched and very blessed, as I'm sure all you, you were as well, as Jonathan last week carefully, reverently let the Spirit speak to us through the passage. So thank you, brother. And may the Lord continue to help us this morning as we now venture through the next three verses of this incredible letter. I remember reading a story once, and I can't remember where I read it. I searched in vain for it this week, but I'll do my best to, to remember the details. It was about a guy who was walking through an Arctic region, walking along a vast barren sheet of ice. His plan was to head north, as I remember the story, and his compass told him that he was walking north. And so he put his compass back in his pocket and he trudged along northward for several more hours. He knew he was walking due north, no problem. But then eventually he stopped and he took out his GPS unit he checked his coordinates, and to his great surprise, somehow he was now further to the south than he had been when he started. Walking north, but now way south of his starting point. How? Well, it turned out that unbeknownst to him, the sheet of ice that he had been walking on was a gigantic floating iceberg many kilometers wide, many kilometers long, and this iceberg had been pushing south the entire time that he had been trying to walk north. Friends, sometimes our perception of our situation can be mistaken. 
Sometimes we can perceive things to be one way when in reality they are the polar opposite, no pun intended. Well, God's word is kind of like that guy's GPS. The word of God presents us with reality. The word of God never lies. It is always 100% accurate. And sometimes the reality that it describes grates against our perception of things. The next verse of Colossians chapter 1 is a case in point. In Colossians 1.21, Paul is describing here the past reality, the past reality of present Christian believers. The past reality of present Christian believers. He's describing what we believers were before God made us alive in Christ. And for some of us, as we look at these accurate GPS coordinates of where we once were, it shocks us. It causes us to pause. Was this really me before Christ invaded my life? Was this really the reality. Paul begins verse 21 with words that in the Greek text, in the original Greek text, are emphatic. And you. Paul has just taken us on this very lofty mountaintop view of Jesus Christ and the cosmos and the church. And now he speaks directly to you believer. And you, believer, you connect with this majestic vision of Jesus Christ and this majestic vision of the cosmos and history and the purpose of all things. And you. You, he says, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now there is God's accurate GPS, his reliable GPS coordinates of our reality before he saved us, if we're believers, before he saved us and made us alive by his spirit. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Believers in Jesus, this was us. But as John Woodhouse has observed, I think it's an important point, he says, some might have a hard time relating to this description of your past reality. You grew up in a fine Christian home. You were good kids. There was no major problems to speak of. You were generous toward others, respectful of grown-ups. You always went to church. Alienated? Hostile in mind? Doing evil deeds? This, this seems like a, a little bit too much of an over-the-top description of me before Jesus stepped into my life. 
Well, perhaps the big overarching point of this verse is simply to show us, as Woodhouse has put it, to show us that apart from Christ, we are utterly lost. Would you agree that apart from Christ, we are utterly lost? Apart from Christ, a human being might think that he or she is going north, when the reality is that they are way, way south. Listen, a person who is outside of Christ, a person who is outside of a vital relationship and union with Jesus Christ, she might perceive herself to be at peace with God. She might assume or might hold to some sort of vague sense that her basic orientation is life, in life is essentially friendly toward God. She might also think that she does good. I, I'm a good person. I do good. And that, that God is smiling on her for her altruism and for her good deeds. Life seems calm. Life seems good. I'm happy and I think I'm good with God. But we take out this unfailing GPS here at Colossians 1.21, and it's like, you ever heard uh, those recordings of the, the old vinyl LPs and the, the needle scratches off? It's like the needle scratches off the record here. God gives us his perspective, his perspective on every human being who lives outside of the salvation and the lordship of his son. And his perspective is that those outside his son are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This was me before 1990 when he saved me at the age of 20 in a gymnasium in Rexdale, Ontario. This was you, believer, in the days before he rebirthed you. This is every human being outside the salvation and the lordship of Jesus Christ alienated, estranged from God. Now, Paul is bringing over this reality of unbelievers being alienated from God. He's bringing this over from his Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament. And of course, if we've read the Bible, we know that the alienation started where? It started in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve broke God's law, and then decided that they would try to hide from him. But the prophet Isaiah summarizes this alienation in very concise fashion. Isaiah 59.2, listen to this verse. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, my friends, there is nothing worse that is imaginable than a creature being estranged from the one who created him or her estranged from the one upon whom all life depends, 
estranged from the one in whom is the meaning, the purpose of all reality. There's nothing worse than being estranged or alienated from him. Believer, you were once alienated from God and, Paul says, the inspired apostle says, you and I were also hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Well, yes. Born into a terminal condition called sin and committing sins, plural. Enslaved to sin. Our whole orientation, our whole bearing, our whole compass when we are outside of Jesus Christ is a bearing that is hostile toward God. And like an irresistible gravitational pull, the unbeliever is inclined to perform God-denying, God-dishonoring behaviors, the evil deeds that Paul talks of here. A little later in this very letter, Paul helps us. He lists many of the evil deeds that enslave and bind those who live outside of Christ. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. So so far, far from loving God with the whole of ourselves, heart, soul, and might. Unbelievers, and that's us before he saved us, we were estranged and hostile toward him. Hostile toward the one that Paul has been describing in this letter. Hostile toward the one who is supreme in rank and supreme in status over everything. Hostile toward the one who created all things. What a terribly foolish and incredibly dangerous posture the unbelieving person takes. But there's good news. The Apostle Paul doesn't leave us there in our past. In that time before we knew Jesus Christ. In verse 22, he goes on to talk about the present reality of the believing person. He explains our current reality if we are in Christ. Paul declares here, and we ought to stand up and shout, that Christ has now what? reconciled us, how? In his body of flesh by his death. Now this whole phrase deserves our very careful meditation. So we want to walk through this slowly together to get the richness here. First of all, according to this verse, who is it that has accomplished the reconciliation between us sinful human beings and the holy God. According to this verse, he has, note it, he has now reconciled us. 
Christ, by his death, has reconciled. It, it wasn't that we decided one day that, hey, you know, I think I've had a change of heart toward God. Uh, I'm going to reconcile my alienated and hostile self to him. I'm going to make the first move. No. Where this reconciliation is concerned, human beings do not make the first move. Human beings, in their condition of being dead in trespasses and sins, corpses in transgressions and sins, we cannot make the first move. In fact, in fact, listen, the, the, the very dilapidated human condition, even as Christ carries out the reconciliation, the, the dilapidated human condition is described unmistakably in Romans chapter 5. So there we are, human beings, morally weak, Paul uses that word, and ungodly. Not godly, ungodly, Romans 5, 6. Sinners, Romans 5, 8. God's enemies, Romans 5, 10. Christ reconciled weak ungodly, sinful enemies to God by his death. He's done that. He has reconciled us. As Paul says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God was reconciling the world to himself. He does the reconciling. And his reconciling work on us gives us the necessary change of heart toward him. He has, when? Now, reconciled us. Now, at the turn of the ages, when the second person of the Trinity has appeared on earth in the flesh to live for a season and then die on the cross, now, in this divinely ordained historical time of restoration, he has reconciled us. And he has reconciled us. The human to God and God to human fellowship, that had been the, it had been essentially lost at the moment of Genesis 3, falling into sin, that is restored through Christ's work on the cross. The death of Jesus Christ on that hill called Calvary, which was an event that had happened only 25 or 30 years before Paul wrote to the Colossians. This historical event on Calvary's hill has changed the relationship between the elect and their God, from sourness in relationship to sweetness, from unhealth in relationship to health, from brokenness in relationship to wholeness, reconciliation. We can think of it in this way, friends, where the justification 
that was happening on the cross changed our legal status as believers from guilty and unrighteous to not guilty and righteous justification. The reconciliation that was happening simultaneously by the cross changed our family status from estranged and alienated to at peace with God and restored in fellowship with him. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. How has this reconciliation happened? What is the means by which this reconciliation has happened? Now I want you to notice very carefully my contemporary evangelical friends what Paul does not say here. Notice this, he has now reconciled us, how? In his body of flesh by his death. He doesn't say here, he has now reconciled us through our praying the sinner's prayer. See that? Praying a prayer that we might be reconciled to God is not the means of our reconciliation. Christ's own fleshly body, crucified on the cross, is the means of our reconciliation. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ with his shed blood is the means of our reconciliation to God. This event that happened on the outskirts of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago is the means, it is the how that to this day, friends, reconciles, has the power to reconcile persons to the God who made them. We must receive it. We must receive the crucified Jesus Christ and the risen Jesus Christ by faith. Only the blood, yes, only the blood that flowed upon Calvary's height can cleanse me from guilt and wash out the stain that sin has made darker than night. Only the blood. But we notice now that this sacrifice, this death of Jesus on the cross, it was not an end unto itself. Notice this, the cross has a wider purpose. And Paul now speaks of that wider purpose in verse 22. Notice how Paul speaks of Christ's death, and then immediately he says, in order to. Notice those words. In order to. Those words indicate purpose. The death of Jesus Christ happened in order to do what? To present you, believer, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Do you see this? The purpose of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, believer, is that you would be presented before God as holy, think of it, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now there is some Old Testament tabernacle and temple language that Paul is using here. Priests in the Old Testament era presented 
animal and grain sacrifices to God, and those sacrifices were designated as holy. And priests presented spotless, unblemished sacrificial animals to the Lord. Paul purposely uses the same words here in our verse. Because of the cross, believers are presented before the Lord as holy and blameless or spotless, unblemished, above reproach. The picture, friends, is this. Christ Jesus, I want you to hear this and get this. Christ Jesus is the high priest who offers himself as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice to the Lord on the cross. He dies a sacrificial substitutionary death for the remission of sins. He is the sacrifice. And the resurrected Jesus Christ presents those he saves by his cross. He presents those who are in union with him as what? As holy, blameless, above reproach. He presents them just like he is. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. Due to the cross, due to the crucified and resurrected person of Jesus Christ, our status as believers as we are presented before God, is holy, blameless, and above reproach. And so I ask you this morning very pointedly, my friend, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you received him as Savior and as Lord of your life? Are you walking in him and are you following him? Do you know the crucified and resurrected and soon coming Lord in a personal way? Are you in vital union with him? And if so, then your status before God, whether you feel it or not, is declared right here. Before him, your status because of Jesus is holy blameless, above reproach. Your sins have been covered. They have been paid for. This is your blessed GPS reality. Go and sin no more. But we are a little surprised, perhaps, at what Paul says next in our final verse this morning. So he's just talked about us believers being presented before the Lord as holy, blameless, and above reproach because of Christ and because of his sacrifice on the cross. But then Paul adds this if section. He says that your status as holy, blameless, and above reproach is a reality if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, how should we read this? 
Paul has just finished talking about our status as believers that has come about by Christ and by his cross. Because of Christ and in Christ, we are presented by the Father as holy, blameless, above reproach. But now he adds this if into the mix. Holy, blameless, above reproach before him if we continue in the faith. So then the question is, does our holy and blameless status before God, does it ultimately hinge on us? Is it in our power to either keep that status or lose it? Well, I think it might be helpful to us, perhaps, at least I hope so, to think of the matter like this. Say this afternoon I go out into our little garden boxes and I bring with me two small seedlings. I plant the two seedlings side by side. Small little stalks with just one leaf on each of them. Both are tomato seedlings. But one of the two is actually made of plastic. It's a completely fake seedling. But the other one is the real thing. I plant them both in the soil and then say about two weeks later, uh, after some good sunshine and some good rain, I go back and I check on the two seedlings. How will they appear? Well, of course, the fake plastic plant is gonna look exactly the same <laughs> as it did when I put it in the soil there, there'll be no growth whatsoever, not even a micromillimeter of growth. But the real plant will have heightened, it will have been nourished and it blossomed and grown bigger, grown stronger, grown more lush. The believer who is rebirthed by the Spirit of God saved by the blood of Jesus, is the real plant. Planted by God in the soil, growing in God in the soil, God designs that the real plant, the real and actual believer will flourish, will blossom, will strengthen where the fake one will not. And if you're genuine in the Lord, my friend, you will indeed continue in the faith. Doesn't mean times are always going to be easy. But you will continue in the faith with stability and steadfastness, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. As the water of the Word of God sprinkles down on you, you love it. It convicts you and it grows you and it changes you. In the soil of His grace, you are motivated to respond in obedience to His commands. And by the sunshine of His love, you sprout, sprout upwards in stability and steadfastness. But the pretend one does nothing of the sort. There is no continuing in the faith, no stability and steadfastness, and there is shifting from the gospel. 
But again, for you, believer, the reconciliation that He has orchestrated, that He has given, is like Him planting you in the soil. And as a genuine child of His, you will continue in the faith and grow and mature and be stable and steadfast and not shift from the hope of the gospel. You must persevere if God has planted you, and you will persevere. Listen, Ephesians 1.4 says that he chose you when? Before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and blameless before him. So eons before you were ever conceived in your mother's womb, it's Mother's Day, God went to his cosmic greenhouse and he chose you, little seedling, to plant you as a believer on his earth and to grow you to his exact specifications. Or Romans 8.29, he predestined you to what? Predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. Or Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, God is a craftsman, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared when? Beforehand, that we should walk in them. So then, my friends, in the final analysis, the reconciliation, the restored fellowship between the believer and God has come from God. And the believer's status of being holy, blameless, and above reproach has come from him also. And the perseverance of the believer, the continuation in the faith, the stability, the steadfastness, the not budging or shifting from the hope of the gospel also comes from him. And yet, even still, there is an undeniable tension in the New Testament. Even though our salvation, past, present, and future, is all of God, we have been saved, we are being saved, we will finally and fully be saved. Even though that is all perfectly true, there is yet a responsibility that has been given to the believer throughout the New Testament, we find this, a responsibility to persist, to continue and persevere in the faith. Ours is to be an active holy life, yes? An active holy life in keeping with God's commands. We don't just sit back. We don't presume on all that God has given us and then do nothing. But this striving for holiness in us, this effort to persevere, will happen in us if we are genuinely in Christ. Now, I was particularly struck this week by that little part in verse 23 
about not shifting, notice, from the hope of the gospel that we heard. Now, first of all here, notice that the gospel is something that we hear. Notice. The gospel is a verbal message that is taken in by ears. The gospel that you heard, says Paul. Now, many of us are familiar, probably, with that popular saying that is attributed to Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. Meaning that the way we live our lives declares the gospel primarily, and only secondarily do our words enter the picture. I'm here to tell you that that is a wrong-headed framework because the gospel by its very nature is a specific verbal message from God that has been spoken to us from outside of us and must be spoken forth into the world. And at the end of the day, the gospel then is words spoken, words heard, words received. And as Mike Horton has pointed out, has argued, if my life lived silently before people was the primary place for those people to hear and see the gospel, it would be very bad news. Because on my very best days, I fail to perfectly example forth the gospel. My life on my best day is no gospel at all. It cannot save. The gospel that the Colossians heard was something like this, that human beings are sinfully rebellious against God and lost and accountable to God and are under God's wrath unless somebody comes along to cover their sin and to pay their deserved penalty and to bear God's wrath that was coming on that sin, rising physically three days later, thereby setting those people free from sin, death, and the devil, and that Christ in his cross and his resurrection has done just that, and you can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. His salvation is for all who believe. This is the basic gospel message that we have heard, believers, that we are not to shift from. And you know as well as I do that there are constant pressures, aren't there, in our day, constant pressures that would have us shift from the gospel. There are raging waters all around us in our day that would encourage us to doubt and to disbelieve and to abandon the gospel altogether. There are influences and there are pressures on us not to continue in the faith. But the call here, the call here is to do what? To fly to Jesus Christ, I hope you do it today, and depend on his resurrection power and remain steadfast and stable and faithful amidst all the pounding waves of our culture. In the power that he supplies, don't shift. And this great and powerful gospel message, says Paul at the end of the verse, has been proclaimed 
in all creation under heaven. It is a gospel, he says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. On the Damascus Road, Paul had been converted to Christ. He had been called by Christ to be a minister of the gospel. And now that gospel that had captured Paul was capturing other hearts. It was spreading inexorably, spreading unstoppably to every part of the earth. My friends, we are living in a time when matters of identity are constant topics of conversation, and we all know that they have become politically charged. Whether we're talking about gender, or skin color, or political tribe, or sexuality, so many people continue to be rather obsessed with such things. Well, I'm so thankful for a passage like the one that we've looked at today, which spells out my identity. It gives me my GPS coordinates, both past and present. Who am I? My identity is not white or cis or straight or middle-aged male or anything of the sort. No, I identify as an image-bearing human being who is in Christ Jesus. That's my identity. I identify as crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I identify as a person who was once alienated from God and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but who is now reconciled to God and at peace with him because of his grace and his rescuing power. I identify as a weak, 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 and I do mean weak. Did I say weak? Human being who has been saved by the sacrificial death of God's son, who now risen presents me to the Father clothed in his own righteousness, not my own, so that my status before God is holy, blameless, and above reproach. I make spirit-empowered effort to continue in the faith, steadfast, stable, not shifting from his gospel. I identify as a sinner saved by grace. I identify as a person who has been commandeered by Jesus Christ. I identify as a person whose life has been invaded by Jesus Christ and who now comes under his lordship and who loves to tell his story and spread his fame and not my own. My friend, how about you? How about you? If you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a fellow capture of the King, would you join me this week 
as together we go out into the world and make his fame and his glory our main concern. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you, we thank you, we adore you. We thank you, Father, we thank you, Son, we thank you, Spirit. We thank you for the world that you have created, our lives which you have created, dropped us onto this earth to rebirth us as believers and set us on mission for you and show us what everything is all about. Lord, you are so good to us. We thank you for our mothers, Lord, who birthed us into this world and pray a special blessing on them today. Lord, would you go with us in might, your might, your strength, where we are weak, be strong, where we are unwise, give us your wisdom, where we need strength, give us strength to be ambassadors for you who would bring glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.